0: About 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. On the day that it happened, most people probably would have considered Jesus' crucifixion to be a relatively ordinary event. Of course, the people that were closest to Jesus would have been totally shocked and traumatized by what happened. But to the average person living in Jerusalem, Jesus' crucifixion would not have been particularly surprising. Because in that place and time, people were crucified regularly. It might seem inconceivable to us sitting here tonight that crucifixion could ever be considered normal or ordinary, because if you know anything about crucifixion, you know that it's a horrific, violent, bloody spectacle. The public display of a humiliated, naked man being tortured, gasping for air as he suffocates to death, surrounded by his enemies, mocking him as he died. If any one of us saw something like that today, we would be emotionally scarred for the rest of our lives. But in the first century, in Roman-occupied territory, life was a lot different than it is in our sheltered culture today. Horrors like this were commonplace things that you would see as you traveled, as you went to the market, as you traveled for business. They were things your children would know about and would see as they ran around and played. People grew accustomed to seeing this sort of barbaric cruelty. And so the horrors of Jesus' crucifixion that astonish us when we hear about them today would have been unsurprising to the people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And the fact that it was Jesus being crucified, well, that also would have been unsurprising to people back then because Jesus was a popular figure who was politically controversial. And the Romans regularly crucified popular Jewish figures that were politically controversial because the Romans wanted to tell the Jews, we have your land and you're never getting it back. So, to folks 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, the horrible spectacle of Jesus' crucifixion probably seemed rather unremarkable. Yes, some strange things happened while Jesus was on the cross, but the fact he was crucified and the violence done on him would probably have been seen as very ordinary events. And yet, two millennia later, today, one billion plus people on earth ...are marking this day as the anniversary of the most significant and extraordinary event in human history. Why? Why was the death of one man 2,000 years ago so important? Why does it still matter to so many people today? Why does it matter to so many of us? Well, that's what we're going to talk about now. As we talk about one of the clearest explanations of the significance of the death of Jesus which we find in a prophecy that was written seven centuries before Jesus was born. We find this prophecy in the biblical book of Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. The text of this prophecy is printed on the back of your bulletin, or if you have one of the Pew Bibles, you can find it beginning on page 574. Tonight's passage not only shows us the importance of the death of Jesus, but it's going to show us why the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago is the most marvelous good news that each of us can hear today. And we're going to see that this news is not just information that we are to take in passively. Friends, this news demands our consideration, it demands our attention, and it demands a response from each of us. So tonight we're going to look at this prophecy and we're going to see three points. First, Jesus, as God's special servant, will be exalted. Second, Jesus, as God's special servant, must suffer. And third, in God the Father's eternal plan and purpose, Jesus is exalted because he endured this terrible suffering. Let's start with our first point, which is that Jesus, as God's special servant, will be exalted. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. And Isaiah lived in desperate times. Uh, his nation had terrible leadership, and it was beset by various international crises. There were wars, superpowers were rising and falling, and Isaiah and his friends were all caught in, in a really bad position in the middle of all of this. Things seemed really bad, and that's because they were. And into this dire situation, God spoke. And God said, yes, things are going to be really bad for your people for a few centuries, Isaiah. You're going to suffer many defeats. You're going to be driven out of your land into exile because the Jews have been guilty of terrible rebellion against me. That's what God says. But God also says to Isaiah, my plans are far greater than just judging my people. Friends, God has a gracious, great, eternal plan. And God's plan runs through the work of a special servant of His. We read about this all throughout Isaiah. In chapter 4, we learn that this servant, whom God calls the branch, is going to purify God's people. He's going to make them holy. He's going to give them peace. He's going to enable them to live in God's very presence. In chapter 7, we learn that this servant will be born of a virgin, that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In chapter 9, we learn that Emmanuel is more than simply a name. It's a description of who this servant is. Isaiah says, To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's servant is to be a king descended from the royal house of David. He will be a miraculous figure. He will be God himself. And yet this everlasting one will be born a child. He will be truly human and truly divine. He literally will be God with us, and one day he will reign without end. Chapter 11, we learn more about him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. God's servant will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will end all that is evil. He will bring about rest for the people of God. And yet, in this same chapter, we're also told he will be born to the royal family during a period when it seems like the royal house is finished. It's like the house of Jesse and David is like a dead stump. And then quite suddenly, it will have new life, like a new little plant emerging from a dead stump. And this shoot will be God's servant who will accomplish all of his purposes. In chapter 49, we learn that God's servant will not only bring about salvation to Israel, he will bring about salvation to the Gentiles. I want you to see God's special servant is critical to the execution of God's eternal plan. And friends, God's special servant is Jesus. Jesus fulfills all of these promises. Jesus was descended from the house of David. His genealogy is presented to us right at the start of the New Testament so that we can see he is the rightful heir to the royal throne of Israel. He was born at a time when the royal house seemed vanquished. Joseph, the man everybody presumed to be Jesus' father, he was no king. He was basically a construction worker, a good and godly man, but not a royal figure. The royalty of the house seemed dead, but it was not. Because Jesus was born, and he was born of a virgin, like the prophet said. He was born a child. He was truly and authentically human. And yet, he was God in the flesh. We see in the Gospels that Jesus wields the very power of God. He does the things that the Old Testament says only God can do. He has power over the natural realm. He stills storms and walks on the water. He has power over the supernatural realm. He casts out demons and forgives sins. He heals illnesses that were not even healed in the most stupendous miracles of the Old Testament. All of these wonders pointed to Jesus' identity. And friends, Jesus did not shy away from his identity. He repeatedly and openly declared himself to be God in the flesh. In John's Gospel, he said, I have come down from heaven. He said, I and the Father are one. And Jesus proved these claims, not just by his supernatural power, but also by his exemplary life. Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection, reflecting the utter holiness of God. It's Jesus that the voice of the Father declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. It's Jesus whom the Holy Spirit visibly descended upon. And certainly it is Jesus who has extended salvation to the Gentiles by the ministry of his apostles. Jesus fulfills all of these promises in Isaiah. Jesus is the promised servant. And as we come now to the beginning of our passage, God says more about what his plan is for Jesus. Chapter 52, verse 13, God says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. This verb translated act wisely appears many times in the Old Testament to speak of someone who knows what he needs to do to accomplish his goals, and he does them. God's servant will have that kind of wisdom and success. He knows he's on a mission. He will understand what he has to do, and he will do it. He will accomplish God's purpose. And what is God's purpose? Well, first, we're told in in verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. Ultimately, the Father's purpose for the servant is this the servant will be high and lifted up and exalted by God. Now, when we hear that, we might think that this means God's going to make his servant famous or rich or influential. But there's a lot more than that in view here. In chapter 2, we read this. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone shall be exalted. Exaltation is something that befits God alone. Man cannot be exalted. Man must be humbled. But God is exalted. God intends for the servant to be exalted as he is. Chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Being high and lifted up is the unique status of God in this book. And yet here we see the servant is to likewise be made high and lifted up. He is to enjoy the position that belongs to God alone. So God's plan is to exalt, to elevate His special servant above all earthly fame and glory. The servant is to enjoy eternal glory, the glory that belongs to God the Father himself. And yet, as, as God continues to speak to Isaiah, things take a sharply ominous turn. Look at verse 14. He says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The servant will prove astonishing. And This is not a positive statement. This word astonishing appears many times in the Old Testament to speak of something that's horrible. So this is no longer speaking about the exaltation of the servant. This is telling us something different. Although God intends the servant to be exalted, God also decrees that his servant must undergo the opposite of exaltation. He must be degraded. And that's what God reveals next to Isaiah. The servant is going to be disfigured. He's going to experience something so awful, he won't even look like a human being anymore. What's this horrible experience? Well, we're not told yet. He'll describe it in a minute. But first, Isaiah says, although this servant's going to undergo this terrible situation, it will produce two positive outcomes. Verse 15, first, because of this experience of his disfigurement, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Just three chapters earlier, God said, I'm not just going to save Israel, I'm going to save Gentiles, too. And now we learn that this specific, that this this salvific purpose of God is connected to the work of the servant. How? Well, the prophecy links the servant's miserable disfigurement with the nations using the word sprinkling. That's an odd word to us, right? What does this mean? Well, this Hebrew verb is found in the Old Testament to talk about the application of the blood of a sacrificed animal. And that seems to be the idea here too. God's servant is going to be connected to some kind of sacrifice. And the benefits of that sacrifice are going to be applied to many nations. This is how God will spread the offer of His salvation throughout the earth. This is one positive outcome of what the servant must experience. But second, look at verse 15. He says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. You know, Kings and powerful people are not usually quiet. But here we see the mightiest people on earth will be silenced by what the servant does. It will come as a complete shock to them. It will not make any sense to them. But when they apprehend what he has done, it is so glorious that it will put them into a position of reverential awe and silence. This is what we read in Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord to one deeply despised, the servant. Kings shall see it arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, who has chosen you. God's plan and the work of God's servant will cause powerful people to be humbled in adoration and worship. You know, in many parts of this world over the centuries, kings and people have humbled themselves and turned to Jesus in repentant faith. And this will go on as history continues. Indeed, in the end, all the world will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. We'll talk more about that at the end of our time today. But as we read on now, Isaiah describes the other side of the servant's experience, the awful side, and that's what we see in our second point, which is that Jesus, as God's special servant, must suffer. The servant is to both be exalted and degraded. It sounds incomprehensible. How can both of these ideas be true? And Isaiah knows that people will have a hard time with this. Chapter 53, verse 1. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's going to believe my message, Isaiah wonders? What God is saying he's going to do, it sounds incomprehensible. It seems beyond anything we could understand. It won't make sense to people. But then he realizes the only people that this is going to make any sense to are the people to whom God reveals it. Because how else are people going to understand the deep wisdom of God? God's got to disclose it to us. And what Isaiah says God is going to reveal here is the arm of the Lord. This is a phrase we find throughout Isaiah, speaking of the power of God. So this is the idea. What God is going to do through Jesus is going to be obscure to most people. Most people won't get it. But God will reveal what he's doing to some. Those people will understand this prophecy, and in it, and in what Jesus does, they will see God's great might and God's great wisdom. And now Isaiah begins to reveal more about what God's going to do in detail as he describes the servant further. Look at verse 2. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. The servant grew up. He is a human after all and he grows up like a plant emerging from something that seemed parched and dead. And if that sounds familiar to us it should cuz just a minute ago I read to you from Isaiah 11 that God's servant would be like a young plant emerging from a dead stump, the line of David and Jesse. The glorious king that the early chapters of this book say again and again will win victory. In chapter 11 is called the root of David. Just as here God's humble servant is called the root. And what we're to take from this is this is the same figure the great king that Isaiah has prophesied is this servant, is the Messiah, is Jesus. And now we learn more about Jesus. Verse two, Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. While the servant is a king, he won't look or seem like a king. He isn't going to have the beautiful people's uh, you know glamour shot looks. He isn't going to appeal to us on the basis of the superficial. Outwardly, he seems remarkably ordinary. And yet what he is to experience will be anything other than ordinary. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This servant will be treated like the lowest of the low. He will be despised and forsaken, rejected and isolated. He would suffer emotional sorrow as he suffered indignity and rejection. And he will suffer physical anguish. We'll see in a minute. His life was acquainted, or the term can mean characterized, by grief you know, I think we often imagine that the American life or the Christian life is to be a life of unending happiness and wealth and prosperity. That isn't what Jesus promises, and it certainly isn't what Jesus experienced. Jesus experienced the worst things imaginable. The servants' own people, the Jews, would esteem him not, Isaiah prophesied. Unlike the kings in chapter 52 who kind of get it and they're shocked and they're reverentially silenced. The people in his own time, in Jesus' day, treat him as an outcast, like the beggar that you turn away from because you're too embarrassed to look at him because of his miserable situation. That's how, Isaiah, or how Israel will treat God's servant, and that is how Jesus was treated. Jesus was often rejected. Jesus' family rejected him. They thought he was crazy. His hometown of Nazareth rejected him. One time he preached there, and they liked his sermon so much, they tried to throw him off a cliff. He spent years patiently ministering to thousands of people in Galilee, healing them. And yet the religious leaders in Galilee said Jesus was empowered not by God, but by Satan. They blasphemed him. And Jesus lost all of his popularity in Galilee. So he went to the Gentiles and he healed some of them. He cast demons out of a terribly afflicted man that was uh, threatening a nearby community. And those people thanked Jesus by kicking him out of the region. Jesus went to Jerusalem, where again the religious leaders opposed him. And when they couldn't defeat him intellectually, they conspired to kill him. Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. Judas literally sold him to his enemies. Peter denied knowing him. The rest of the disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested, leaving him all alone. He was subjected to false trials, where corrupt witnesses offered perjured testimony against him. Jesus was presented to the crowd that just a few days earlier had welcomed him to town so warmly. And that crowd said they'd prefer to have Barabbas, a vile murderer, released, and that they wanted Jesus to be crucified. And then at the end, listen to the people who walked by the cross as Jesus hung there in Matthew 27. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. If anyone had reason for sorrow and grief, it was Jesus, abandoned and alone, left to suffer this horrible cruelty at the hands of his enemies, rejected by nearly everyone. Why did Jesus face this? Why was this the plan of God? Why was... Why did God want His servant to endure this pitiful situation? Isaiah tells us in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. If you're a believer tonight, when we think about the death of Jesus, we may think, well, I know all about that. I know why Jesus died. But remember, friends, our understanding of these events would have been incomprehensible to the people that were seeing them. This prophecy would have been the furthest thing from their minds. The people on the streets who saw Jesus carrying his cross, the people who walked by as he hung there suffocating, none of them would have said, well, this is how it has to be. This is to fulfill the eternal plan of God. No, Isaiah tells us what they were thinking. They looked at Jesus and said, wow, this man must have really angered God to wind up like this. He must have been really guilty. He must have deserved this. But they were wrong. Jesus didn't deserve this because he was not guilty. He hadn't committed blasphemy. He'd spoken the truth when he said he was God. More than that, Jesus wasn't just innocent of the charge of blasphemy. Jesus is innocent of every charge because he is without sin. Jesus was not on the cross because of the displeasure of God. He was not receiving a penalty that he had earned. Jesus was on the cross, friends, because of us. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He paid for our sin. And indeed, Jesus paid for it. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Not only was Jesus reviled by the soldiers that spat on him, by the priests who blasphemed him, by the crowds who repudiated him, but Jesus suffered intense physical pain. This would have started right after he was arrested, Jesus would have been punched and slapped repeatedly. We're told in the Gospels he was scourged twice. The first scourging was probably what the Romans considered the lesser scourging, and they called this the fustigatio. This was a violent whipping and beating, and that's the lesser scourging. The second scourging was the cruelest form of Roman torture, known as verberatio in which Jesus would have been stripped naked and tied to a post. And several soldiers would have stood around him and tortured him, each in turn by repeatedly whipping him with a whip made of many leather strands. And at the end of each of these strands would be a fragment of glass or metal or bone. And this would have torn into Jesus' flesh, exposing his muscles and his bones and his organs. Blood would have been everywhere. And then they beat Jesus with a club. They mocked his kingship. They pressed a crown of thorns into his head. They draped a purple garment over his torn body, which would have rubbed against his open wounds and exposed nerve endings. And then they made Jesus carry his cross. History tells us the Romans usually stuck the vertical part of the cross in the ground at the execution site before the prisoners got there. What they would do is make the prisoners walk through the streets, carrying the horizontal part of the cross beam on their backs, allowing the wood to scrape in to the the backs which had been opened by that horrible scourging. And as the prisoners carried their crosses, exposed and humiliated through the streets, guards walked behind them, continuing to whip them. If you know the account, we read it a minute ago, Jesus was so brutalized, he could not carry the cross the whole way. A man from the crowd had to be dragged out to carry the beam to Calvary. And finally, Jesus arrived there, and there they crucified him. Most crucifixion victims were simply tied to the cross, but archaeology tells us sometimes when the Romans were feeling particularly vicious, they would nail their victims to the cross. John's gospel and the book of Colossians tell us that's what happened to Jesus. Most likely they would have nailed Jesus' hands to the crossbeam and then lifted the crossbeam high into the air. I mean, I, I can't imagine how horrible that must have felt to have your whole body weight suspended by your hands. And then they would have attached the horizontal piece to the vertical piece. Jesus' feet would then have been nailed or tied to the vertical post. The scriptures don't tell us. Although we have found the bones of some people who were crucified and what we find are metal spikes driven through their ankle bones. And so this would suggest that Jesus' feet or ankles would have been nailed separately to either side of the vertical part of the cross. And then Jesus was left to hang there for six hours. Crucifixion is designed to deprive a dying man of oxygen. To take... One breath. Jesus would have had to put his entire weight on his nailed feet and his nailed hands and drag himself up against the unfinished wood of the cross just to inhale. And then he would have slumped back down again. And that's how he had to breathe time and again, hour after hour. All the while surrounded by his enemies who were celebrating his anguish. But that was only part of Jesus' suffering. Because as Jesus suffered, the full measure of the wrath of God was poured upon Jesus. Not because of his guilt. Because he didn't have any. The wrath of God was poured upon Jesus because of my sin and your sin. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus bore the curse that we should have received the curse that our sin deserved, and this agony was the cruelest of all. This is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was pierced by the crown of thorns, by the metal spikes. His heart was pierced by a spear, and Jesus was crushed. In every respect, his body was laid waste by this awfulness. This is beyond the most pitiful and wretched situation that you or I could imagine. Why in the world did God allow this to happen to Jesus? Why in the world did God purpose this to happen to Jesus? Because verse 5 says this, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus experienced this torture and violence because that was the price. That's what it costs to atone for our sin. That's what it costs to buy you and me peace with God. It's so easy to view our sin as minor and trivial, isn't it? We're good at rationalizing, right? We cannot view our sin as a small deal when we look at the cross aright. This is the awful price of our treason. This is what should have fallen upon us, because make no mistake, unlike Jesus, who is totally innocent, we are absolutely guilty. Verse 6, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Each of us is guilty. We each are sinners by nature. We each are sinners by choice. We each have done what God has commanded us not to do. We each have failed to do what God has commanded us to do. And we have done this again and again and again. And so we are traitors in God's universe countless times over. And our guilt generates infinite debt before him. Debt that we cannot pay. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. And this speaks of physical death. We deserve to die like the criminals that we are. This speaks of spiritual death, that we are separated from God, the source of all life and goodness. And this speaks of eternal death, eternal condemnation, forever exiled from the presence of God in unending torment. Friends, we deserve that. Because we each are guilty, and we all are guilty. But Jesus went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to pay this awful penalty. He went to the cross to bear it in our place. And God has laid on Jesus our iniquity so that we can be forgiven and set free from sin's dominion over us. And yet as Jesus took our sin upon himself, as he bore the penalty that we deserve, look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If you were unjustly accused of a terrible crime, you would cry out in protest, right? You'd want everyone to know that it wasn't true. You'd shout it from the rooftops. Jesus was wrongfully accused, Jesus was innocent, and yet he paid the penalty, not just for one outrageous crime. But for every sin his people have ever committed, he became sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And yet he did not cry out in his own defense. He basically stood silent through his unjust trials. He did not cry out for vengeance upon his torturers. He did not protest his innocence from the cross. He did not curse those who were cursing him as he died. First Peter 2 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus endured all of this, trusting the purpose of God the Father. Jesus accepted that this was his mission, to be the sacrificial lamb who dies to atone for the sins of others. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Isaiah says the servant will undergo legal oppression. He will be taken away and cut off. That is, he will receive the death penalty in an act of profound injustice. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. False, corrupt legal trials arranged by wicked people led to a judicially sanctioned murder at Calvary. And again, the people who lived to see this happen, they did not understand they were witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy. They did not understand that this was God's plan for Jesus to bear the sins of others, of my people, Isaiah says. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Although Jesus was not a criminal, he, he was In fact, sinless, he was crucified in the midst of two bandits or revolutionaries. And in their presence, he died. But as this prophecy foretold, Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man. All four Gospels independently corroborate that after Jesus died, one of his followers, a rich man named Joseph, took Jesus' body down from the cross and put Jesus' body in a tomb that he had had carved for himself. And so Jesus literally was with the rich in his death. Now, this is an amazing prophecy. This was all written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And yet, look how perfectly it matches the details of his death. Friends, this is clearly the outworking of the purpose of God. God declared what he was going to do before he did it. And this assures us that the death of Jesus was the plan and purpose of God. And that's what verse 10 says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The crucifixion of Jesus is not an accident of history. This is the will of the triune God. Jesus was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was rejected. He was tortured. He was mocked. He was crucified. But at the end of the day, Peter says this in Acts 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. So that our transgressions might be healed. That our sin might be forgiven. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is why Jesus died, and praise God that he did. But the story doesn't end there. And as we come to our last point, we see that, in fact, Jesus' suffering was the path that would lead him to the exaltation that God had sworn. Verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Here, Jesus' life is called an offering for guilt. This is a technical term from the Old Testament, talking about the sacrifices. The servant's life will be a sacrifice offered for sin. Yet there's a promise here. Although the servant dies, he will see offspring. There will be children who proceed from his saving work, those who are saved by the death of Jesus. As one writer puts it, we strayed like sheep, but we return as children. And by his death, the servant forms a people for his own possession who become the very children of God. More than that, we're told that although the servant has died, although he has been cut off out of the land of the living, although he has been assigned a grave, God the Father shall prolong his days. Death is not the end for the servant. Because on the third day, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Triumphant over sin and death and the spiritual forces of darkness. Romans 1 says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we will rejoice in that glorious truth on Sunday. But the servant will rise from death. Lastly, we're told here, the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. The servant will complete the mission. He will do all the Father sent Him to do. That was how this passage started, right? And friends, Jesus has done it. He has completely accomplished the Father's saving purposes on the cross, which is why Jesus cried with his last breath, It is finished! It's a victory cry. Jesus has won our freedom. It was a painful victory. It was a hardship that, praise God, will never fully know. But Jesus endured it, trusting in the Father, knowing that by so doing, he was accomplishing a victory. Good verse 11. He says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. How could Jesus be satisfied in the midst of the cross? How could he endure all of this agony without coming down from the cross or calling for angels to intervene? Hebrews 12 says this, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was shame at the cross. There was humiliation and pain and anguish. But Jesus despised all of that. He didn't cower or crumble in the face of it. He didn't let it crush him. He endured confident in the purposes of the Father. He endured the worst that men could throw at him. He endured the Father's own wrath because there was joy set before him. The joy of obeying the Father and joy beyond that. Verse 11. There are spoils of the war that he waged at the cross, and Jesus has received them from the Father. And the first of these is what we talked about at the beginning, exaltation. This is a point we may not think about often, but the Bible repeatedly links Jesus' exaltation to the cross. Now we might think, well, Jesus is God, the eternal Son. When he ascended back into heaven, he was only returning to the glory that was already rightfully his. And that's true in part. Jesus did pray in John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Certainly, God the Son had a right to exaltation because he is God. But the Son has taken on flesh. The one who ascended into heaven was truly God, and yet he remains and always will remain truly human. And this one who is exalted so highly upon his ascension is the God-man, Jesus. And the Bible says that he has been highly exalted because he voluntarily submitted to the Father's will and suffered in this way. Listen to Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a consequence of Jesus' humility, his willingness to become a man and to die and to suffer this horrible death, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we worship a man today, a man who sits alongside the Father. He is not a man who became God. He is God who became a man. And today he sits alongside the Father. He is exalted and high and lifted up. And he is Lord. And one day this whole earth, believing and unbelieving, will bow before him. But even before then, the Father has already, Ephesians 1 said, seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Friends, Jesus is highly exalted, and he will be forever exalted. And the scripture says the road to this exaltation runs through the cross. Father's will for the Son is ultimately glory, but it runs through the suffering of Good Friday. But not only has Jesus received exaltation, he has obtained victory. He's triumphed over his and our spiritual adversaries. He has secured the promise of a new creation where only righteousness and bliss will dwell. And he has secured many people's entry into that new creation. Believing, friends, we are the spoils that Jesus has won. By his victory at the cross, he has purchased us and his purpose was for us to spend eternity in the new creation alongside him. The scripture says he has made us his co-heirs, that we will enjoy all the splendor of the victory that he has secured. And we have this glorious hope because he has borne our sin, because he has caused us to be counted righteous by the Father, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Tonight I want to say to you, if you have never cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus believing that he is truly God and truly man, that he has died for your sins and that he is risen again, do so. Friend, the cross shows you the awful price of sin. If you are not in Jesus, you will pay that price in full forever. But verse 11 says that the true knowledge of Jesus, knowing him as our Savior and our Lord, that means that his work on the cross is credited to our account. He makes us righteous before the Father. He wins us eternity in his presence. If you do know Christ this evening, this is what I want to say to you. Let us be like the kings described in chapter 52, whose mouths were silenced in awe because of what Jesus has done. Let us now stop and consider the cross. Let us remember who we were. Let us remember what it took to win our freedom the broken body and shed blood of God's special servant, Jesus.